The following message is by Dr. Derek Brown, pastor and elder at Creekside Bible Church, located in Cupertino, California. We're going to open up to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. And we are excited to continue our study in Hebrews. Uh, I've enjoyed our study. I hope you have too. I've gotten some feedback from you. It's been helpful. Tried to answer your questions uh, as we go through the text, as you've offered them after uh, the sermons, and so I hope it's been helpful to you. Really, what we constantly need is the reminder that Jesus has provided us a sufficient sacrifice that has been once for all given that doesn't need to be repeated. And that's what we've been working on these last few chapters, and it's what we're going to be looking at again today. And as we come to this text, we do need to recall that the author of Hebrews has been, for the last few chapters, painting a picture of the Old Covenant that has been teaching us that it was only meant to be temporary. It was always meant to be temporary. It was always God's intention to have it be temporary. He's mentioned it, he's called it a shadow of the good things to come. He's called it a copy of heavenly things. Shadows, copies, not the real thing, not the permanent thing. That's the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant, like we've said, the Old Covenant is the picture of your fiancé that you have on your bedside while she's gone for a two-month trip until she gets back and knocks on the door and says, let's go on a date. And so you don't need that picture anymore because she's here. She's the new covenant. Your picture of her is the old covenant. So you, you put the picture down, you lock up the house, and you go on your date, right? She's the new covenant. The old covenant is that die-cast metal airplane that you had when you were a little kid. But now you're on the deck of a U.S. Uh, uh, U.S. Navy's um, aircraft carrier, and you no longer need that now that you're a, a pilot. You, don't not, you no longer need that die-cast metal airplane because now you get to fly the real thing. And I've known some people, and I've read about people who've done this. They've gotten an RV, and they've sold their house, and they've bought a plot of land, and they'll go and they'll live in their RV while they build their own house on, on a piece of land that they've purchased. And they'll live in that RV, and they'll build their house with their own hands, and Sounds all very romantic, I guess, until you start it. But anyways, I've read about this. And they'll stay in their RV, they'll build their house, and then after the house is completed, you no longer need the RV. You, don't not, you no longer need to stay in that stinky, dingy, rusty RV because now the new house is built. The RV is that old covenant. The new covenant is your new house, and you don't need that RV anymore. It was only meant to be temporary. It's never meant to be permanent. Once you live in that new house, you wouldn't go back and start living in that RV again. That doesn't make any sense. In fact, if it's old and dingy, then you might just throw it off the edge of a cliff and be done with it because it was only meant to be temporary. The house is the new covenant. In each of these examples, you have a picture of an old, uh, an old reality that gives way to a new reality. The picture was temporary. The model airplane was temporary. The RV was temporary. That's the point. The house is permanent. The airplane is permanent. And your fiancé is permanent. To go back to the picture, to go back to the RV, to go back to the little airplane, little model airplane, it wouldn't make any sense because now you're in the era of the new covenant. Why? Because the new covenant, in the new covenant, we have a once-for-all sacrifice that frees us from guilt, ritual, and sin. If you want to look at the title of today's message, Freedom from Guilt, Ritual, and Sin, The Power of Christ Once for All Sacrifice. That's what the sacrifice of Christ does. It frees us from guilt, 
It frees us from religious ritual and it frees us from sin. Let's look at the first point. We have in the new covenant freedom from guilt. This verse is one through four, freedom from guilt. Christ's once for all sacrifice removes consciousness of sin. The argument of verses one through four here are pretty straightforward. In fact, it's kind of a summary of all that he's been saying up to this point, the author of Hebrews. If you've been with us for the last few weeks, you've seen that the Old Covenant is merely a a shadow of the good things to come, and that's what he says in the first verse. For since the law, and that's just another way of talking about the Old Covenant, since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, okay, so just, that's, again, what you have is a shadow, and now giving way to the, the true form, namely the new covenant, it can never by the same sacrifice that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. The old covenant wasn't meant to be permanent. It was meant to be temporary. It wasn't the final sacrifice. It pointed to the final sacrifice. That doesn't mean that it was evil. That doesn't mean it was wrong. Doesn't mean that the old covenant was against God's will. It just means that it was temporary and is always meant to be temporary. In fact, if you'll remember, the author of Hebrews takes us even back before the Old Covenant was even given, before Moses was even on the scene, back to this obscure character called Melchizedek who shows up for only a couple of verses in Genesis chapter 14, and he takes us there to show us that even there we're taught that the Old Covenant was meant to be temporary. And then you bookend that with story, uh, the teaching of the New Covenant in Jeremiah, and you have the Old Covenant bookended on, one, on both ends teaching you that it was only meant to be temporary and meant to give way to a new covenant. It was a shadow. By its very nature, that's what he's saying here, by its very nature, it says it can never, that Old Covenant system, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, it cannot deal finally with the worshiper's sin problem. It couldn't make perfect those who draw near. Those who draw near are referring to worshipers. That's what a worshiper is. You're drawing near to God. You desire to draw near to God. And it refers to the worshipers in Israel who are seeking to have communion with the one true and living God. And the only way that could happen was through a sacrificial system. But here's the kicker. The sacrificial system was designed for that very purpose in order to help people draw near to God. But at the same time, it was only meant to be temporary. It was only a temporary shadow of something better, and it wasn't able to perfect the worshiper. What do we mean by the word perfect? What is he talking about here? It couldn't perfect those who draw near. It couldn't perfect the worshiper. Where, well, he tells us in chapter 7, verse 18, that the law could make nothing perfect. And you might be thinking, well, what does that mean? Well, then he goes on to tell us in chapter 9, verse 9, according to this arrangement, the arrangement of the old covenant sacrifices, Gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. That's the issue. You would draw near to God year after year, day after day, week after week, wanting to come near to God, and he's given you a sacrificial system so that you could receive atonement for your sin or covering for your sin that you've committed. But you could never settle in your conscience the comfort of knowing your sins were completely forgiven. That would never be a complete and total peace that you could ever have under the Old Covenant. Why is that? He tells us. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have consciousness of sins? But, since, but in these sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins every year. 
Every single time you offer a sacrifice, you're reminded, oh yeah, I'm a sinner. Oh yeah, I'm a sinner. Oh yeah, I'm a sinner. And not only that, but my sins haven't been fully forgiven because here we are again offering the same sacrifices year after year. Every single time a sacrifice would be offered, you as the worshiper desiring to draw near to God, you would be reminded your sins aren't completely forgiven. That's what the sacrificial system showed you. Isn't that interesting? You would have a constant consciousness of sin brought about by the very system that was given to you by God in order to atone for your sin. Isn't that, isn't that amazing? God had given Israel a, a sacrificial system so they could draw near to God. Death was required for sin, right? That's established in Genesis chapter 2 and 3. Death is required for sin. Adam had sinned. All mankind had sinned, Israel had sinned, so they needed a sacrificial death in their place. And so God provides them a sacrificial system so they could draw near to God. But that very system that enabled them to draw near to God also showed them at the same time their sins are never fully forgiven. Your sins are never fully forgiven. Because guess what? Tomorrow or next year or whenever, I'm going to have to offer more sacrifice. The high priest is going to have to go into the Holy of Holies again to make sure that Israel has atonement and can fellowship with their God. But Jesus changes all of that. All of that is meant to be a backdrop, a dark backdrop, so that Jesus Christ and his final sacrifice can shine like the diamond that it is. Jesus Christ, the perfect sinless God-man, is able to substitute for sinful humans. He is able to. His death on the cross fully satisfied his father's justice and thereby covered all of his people's sins once and for all, thereby removing their consciousness of sin. There are no more regular sacrifices to remind you that your sins are not forgiven. Your sins, if you're in Christ, have been forgiven forever. Any kind of reminder that brings brings upon the guilt of sin that you must pay for, that's not a reminder of the new covenant. In Christ, all of your sins have been forgiven. But I think we need to ask a few more questions because you might already be coming up with some objections in your own mind about this. How can the author say, through his kind of question and answer sequence here, how how is it that we don't have any more consciousness of sins? Surely, Derek, We do have consciousness of sins, don't we? Well, yes and no. Yes and no. It's clear in a text like Romans 7, 14 through 23, where Paul is is wrestling with his own sin. He has a delight for the law of God in his own heart. He's, He's a changed man. And he loves the law of God, and he loves the Lord Jesus Christ, and he wants to obey fully and completely, but there's still this sinful flesh that dogs him, and drives him a bit bonkers at times, right? Because he wants to obey the Lord, and yet there's this sin that's causing this struggle with him. And so, yes, you can say that we have a consciousness of sin, in a sense. In fact, when you become a believer and your heart has changed, you might even have a more acute sense of your sin. I know this is the case for me. You know, I was prior to uh, becoming a believer at age 19, I, I was convicted here and again that I did bad things. But now as a believer, the, the sense, the acuteness of my sin against 
my heavenly father, it's, it's far more sharp than it, it was. So there is a sense in which, yes, believers have a, a consciousness of sin, but it's not like those who are under the old covenant system. And this is where we have to be utterly clear. There is a way in which we no longer have a consciousness of sin. Our sin is a grief to us. It does afflict us. That is true. But Christ's once-for-all sacrifice eliminates our guilt once and for all. And we have to reckon with that. We no longer bear the legal guilt of our sin. We are no longer reminded. Here it is. We are no longer reminded of unforgiven sin. See, that's what Israel was reminded of year in and year out, week in and week out. Unforgiven sin. It's like you got forgiven and then you had to come back and get forgiven again, right? More sacrifices, more sacrifices. That's not where we are at under the new covenant, although some of us kind of live like that, isn't it? Talk about that in a moment. We can keep looking to the cross where the once for all sacrifice occurred and rest in the comfort that the guilt of our sin is removed completely and forever. For those of us who are in Christ, the guilt of our sin has been removed forever. That's the gospel. I don't know how you live without it. That's the gospel. And we have, we have to do this continually. See, the, the finality of Christ's sacrifice was, was settled 2,000 years ago. But we must be constantly applying it to our hearts and mind to be reminded of what he has done. This really is the fight of faith in large measure. God will no longer condemn us for our sin because he has forgiven us of our sin. Now, actually, this is the beauty of it, God actually joins us with putting our sin to death. He's now on our team, he's on our side, and he is now warring with us against our sin. No longer counting it against us, no longer condemning us for it, but helping us expose it and confess it and put it to death. A child who is confident in, in their parents' acceptance and love is able to expose and confess their sins and their mistakes to their parents. Yes, they'll have an awareness of their sin, but when they're living in a home where grace is preeminent, when a child sins, they, they won't say, I messed up, Gotti and Daddy are going to kill me. Hopefully they'll say, I messed up, I need Mommy and Daddy. And that's the picture you have of God with his children in the new covenant. We no longer need to say, God is going to kill me for my sin. No, I sinned. I need my heavenly father because my sins have been forgiven, removed forever by Christ's once for all sacrifice. You might be saying, Derek, you're repeating yourself. Yes, because I'm repeating what scripture is reemphasizing over and over and over. Why? Because we need it every single week. We really need it every single day. It's why people have come up with the phrase, preach the gospel to yourself. We need to always be reminding ourselves of these truths. The, the old covenant worshiper could never experience this kind of conscience-soothing assurance that all of their sins were forgiven. Because the moment you sacrifice, you go and sin against your wife, and you're like, oops, got to come back and sacrifice again. They could never have experienced in this kind of conscience-soothing power of a final sacrifice. They were looking forward to that day when it would all be finished in their Messiah. So is it good to be sensitive to your own sin as a Christian? Absolutely. Absolutely. But it is not good to swim in the sludge of despair over your sin, which some of us are prone to do. 
It just may be the way we're brought up, the way we've been taught the Bible, the way we've uh, been taught by our own parents, our own uh, makeup in terms of who we are and our personalities. I'm not sure, but constant unending rumination and misery over your sin is not God's will for you. I'm not suggesting that you're not mourning over your sin in an appropriate way, but this is why it's so vital for us to grasp Christ's once-for-all sacrifice. The only way you can feel appropriate grief for your sin is if you are sure you have been forgiven of it. It's a little counterintuitive, actually. The only way you can feel appropriate, heart-rending grief for your sin is when you are sure you've been forgiven of it then you can just open up to God. You can open up to others. i got nothing to hide. That's how you deal with sin. That's how sin is dealt with in the new covenant. The awareness of our sin must be rooted in Christ's once-for-all sacrifice and our complete forgiveness, or otherwise a couple of things can happen. Otherwise, we'll be overwhelmed with our sin, or here's the other side, we'll turn our despair into a kind of self-righteousness where we're trying to earn God's favor for how miserable we feel about ourselves. Isn't this great, God? I'm, I'm, I'm just always miserable. Don't you love that? And we may even substitute feeling miserable for our sin for actual faith, repentance, and obedience. I've done that before. I just think that the, the culmination of my obedience is just feeling miserable about myself. No, that's not the culmination. The Lord wants faith and repentance and obedience. But only seeing and savoring Jesus' Once for all sacrifice and complete forgiveness of sins enables us to confront sin head on. Otherwise, when you see your own sin, the fear of condemnation will immediately set in and you can't rightly deal with it. So what do we do? We look to Christ once for all sacrifice. And we now are able to pull up sin by its roots because we're no longer afraid of God condemning us for our sin. Why do you think Paul says... In Romans 8.1, right after his uh, uh, confession of his struggle and wrestling with sin, why do you think he says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? Before launching into talking about putting sin to death in Romans 8. Well, it's because that's the temptation, isn't it? To begin to settle into a, a, a constant feeling of condemnation because you wrestle with sin instead of using Christ's once-for-all sacrifice as a way to actually confront your own sin and to root it out. To be settled in your assurance that God has forgiven all of your sin. Rightly understood, that does not lead to a lawless life where you just kind of say, well, if God's forgiven me, I can just do whatever I want. People who talk like that don't understand what Christ has done for them. They don't understand what Christ has done for them because actually once you've grasped that, now you are ready to truly mourn over your sin. In the Christian life, there should be the experience of utter joy and assurance in God while at the same time mourning appropriately for our sin, even weeping over our sin, but then being comforted by Christ's sacrifice. That's the Christian life, sorrowful yet always rejoicing, sorrowful yet always rejoicing. And if we don't keep that balance, we will become unbalanced at some point, either making light of our sin or becoming so overwhelmed by it that we make no effort or no progress in the Christian life. Well, what was the problem with the Old Covenant? You're told in verse 4, we're told in verse 4, very clear. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Let that sink in. 
You could apply that to every other religious ritual in the world. It's impossible for whatever, just, just pick that religious ritual. It's impossible for that religious ritual, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats in the Old Covenant to take away sins. That word impossible there, it's the same word used. Here's the encouraging thing. It's the same word used for in uh, Hebrews 6.11 where it says that it's impossible for God to lie. Just as impossible it is for God to lie, so it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. It's impossible for any religious ritual to take away sin. It should be abundantly clear for us and for those who he was writing to, these Jewish believers, it should be abundantly clear that an animal cannot substitute for a human. just can't happen. In the old covenant system, where the, the sacrificial system was established by God himself, there should have been some kind of awareness like, this ain't going to cut it. An animal can't sacrifice and substitute for a human. Not ultimately. This has to be temporary. There's an unbridgeable chasm between an animal and a human. I feel like I need to repeat that today because of the uh, world in which we live. There's an unbridgeable chasm between an animal and a human for only humans are created in God's image. Bulls and goats are fine. They're God created and they're good. Little lambs are cute, right? I like little lambs. I like pictures of little lambs. They're cute. They're sweet. But they're not the very image of God. One human life is... In, let me... This, is, this will be startling to some, I'm sure. One human life is infinitely more valuable than all the animals ever created. Isn't that amazing? Why? Because that human life is created in the image of God. So you could sacrifice every animal in existence and not wipe away one sin for that human being. By its very nature, the old covenant sacrificial system could not deal once and for all with sin because it was only giving you animal sacrifices and animals cannot substitute for the very image of God. Who can substitute for a sinful image bearer? Who can then? Well, he gives us the answer in the next few verses. Let's look at verse 5 and following. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, and now he's about ready to quote Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired. But a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. The author here quotes Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8, in his argument that the Old Covenant, again, was never intended to be permanent. It was always meant to be temporary. And he says that God not delighted in burnt offerings, and he doesn't require burnt offerings. So we need to do some work here because there's, there's about three pretty significant problems with this text that we bump up against that we need to answer. Okay, Three important questions we need to ask. The first one is pretty easy. The second one has a moderately hard rating, and the third one is moderate to severe rating. Those are the ratings that I gave them. Um, so we'll see what you think. But the first we have to uh, ask what he is saying here when he says that uh, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, and, he, and he's saying that these are things that Christ has said. Okay, look at back in verse 5. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said sacrifices and so on. And you're thinking, well, Derek, I know my Bible, and this is Psalm 40, and that's not Christ, that's David. So the question we have to ask is what warrant does the author of Hebrews have to look back into Psalm 40 and say that this is Jesus? This is Christ speaking. 
Well, it's common for the New Testament authors to see David as a type of Christ. What's a type? A type in the Old Testament is a, an event or an institution or a person like the Passover or David or the sacrificial system that God intended to point to Christ and to be fulfilled in Christ. That's what a type is. And the Old Testament is full of types. A person, an institution, or an event that is meant to point to the Lord Jesus Christ and be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So the Passover and the Passover lamb, you can see how that points to Christ. The sacrificial system points to Christ. David points to Christ. David is the great king after God's own heart who God will establish in his reign forever. And we also saw a few weeks ago that he was, if you were here, David is also the king who took on priestly roles during his reign. It's quite amazing. You see this in the Old Testament. He's the king. It's clear he's the king. And you have the two offices separated. And you couldn't blend them. But slowly over time, David begins to take on priestly roles. And he becomes a forerunner to the final priest, King Jesus. Well, David was a sinner who died, we know that, but he wrote several psalms, and a number of them are picked up in the New Testament as being foreshadowings of Christ, of the Messiah. You could think of Psalm 22, that might be one of the most famous ones, where David himself in the psalm said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me in a time of great trial? And those words Jesus took upon his lips at the cross, saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why? What's happening in Psalm 22? Well, David is speaking as a type of Christ, a type of sufferer, a king who suffers. And so it is entirely within, keeping within the Old Testament context and the New Testament arrival of the Messiah to look back and to read those Psalms as fulfilled in Christ. It's right to read the Psalms in their historical context and understand them in their historical context, but we also are to read them according to their fulfillment in Christ and to look for the ways that they pointed to Christ and were fulfilled in Christ. And and often the New Testament is explicitly telling us how that works. So the author of Hebrews is, is fully within his interpretational rights to do what he did with Psalm 40. This is how even the Jews would have read some of the Psalms as messianic, seeing this is the Messiah, this is the Messiah speaking here, and that's what the author of Hebrews is doing. He's putting these words into Christ's mouth so that Christ, through David, is speaking these things even before he arrives on the scenes, arrives on the scene several years later. So that one was, that had the easy rating. The next one has a moderate, a rating of moderate difficulty, I think. See what you think. How can it be that he could say such a thing David, now, Psalm 40, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired. Wait a second. I've got verses for you, David. Maybe you haven't read these before. Listen to what Leviticus 17.6 says. I'm not suggesting he didn't read these. This is obviously a little bit of irony here, but uh, Leviticus 17.6 uh, says this, and the priest shall throw the blood on the altar of the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting and burn the fat for a pleasing aroma to the Lord. <laughs> it says here, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired. It sounds like he desired them. Let's make it a little more challenging. Look down in verse 6. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. And either one of those, you could say, have not required, not delighted in. That's the idea here. 
And so how could you say that he has not required or taken no pleasure in them? He has ordered them in the Old Covenant. God has commanded these things to be done. So how is it that you have now here in Psalm 40 these statements that say, God, you haven't desired sacrifices. You haven't required them, in other words. It's because David is is saying that God hasn't ultimately required or delighted in these things, has he? And every spiritually sensitive Jew should have recognized this. In fact, even David himself recognized this in Psalm 51, verse 17. He wrote this. He said, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. See, Israel had gotten into a pattern. By the time of Isaiah, it was a pretty horrific pattern. They had gotten into a pattern of offering sacrifices by mere rote, by mere ritual, no heart, no feeling, no faith, just going through the motions and thinking that that would earn God's favor, get God's favor to shower down upon them. You can read Psalm 58. It is a strong word against that kind of religious hypocrisy. And yet they had come to that point where they're just offering sacrifice without even any heart or faith behind it at all. And David's recognizing even uh, early on that that's not what you want, Lord. You don't want mere repetition of sacrifice as though the, the mere uh, uh, sacrificing of an animal is what you want with, when my heart is far from you. David recognized that. And, and the author of uh, uh, David is recognizing that also in Psalm 40, and the author of Hebrews is picking up on that. In fact, he tells us how we're to interpret Psalm 40 here in verse 8. He says, when he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. In other words, with the coming of the Messiah, there is going to be a replacement of those old covenant sacrifices, because that's not ultimately what God delighted in. What did he delight in? Well, he delights in people doing his will, and here we have a Messiah who is going to do his will. And by doing that, he is going to establish the new covenant. Sacrifices and offerings were not, I should say animal sacrifices and offerings, were not part of the Messiah's mission. And this signaled that he was ending the Old Covenant and establishing the New. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. So David is not unaware of the Old Covenant and what God had required and what God delighted in. Of course he knew that. But what he is seeing is that these are things that God doesn't ultimately delight in. They are merely temporary. And so when the Messiah comes, he is going to do something different. He'll establish a new covenant. And so it's just, it's just great to see throughout the Old Testament, you just have constant hints that the Old Covenant is temporary. The Old Covenant itself is telling you it's temporary. I'm temporary. Like, why are you holding on to me? Right? All right, that had a rating of moderate difficulty. Now we're on to the third question that has, I think, a little more challenge to it. If you are familiar with this text here and you've read Psalm 40. In your Old Testament, you might already be wondering what's going on here. The author of Hebrews is using the Septuagint when he's quoting the Old Testament. Septuagint was written uh, 2nd century, around 250 BC, around then, and it was a Greek translation of the Old Testament, which is written in Hebrew. And that's what he's using here. A lot of the New Testament uh, writers use the, the, the Septuagint. It was 
a standard translation for the Jews of Jesus' time. That's fine. It's no big deal with that. It's fine. Using the Septuagint. He says here, he says in verse 5, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. Well, the problem with that is because Psalm 40, verses 5 and 6 says this, In sacrifice and offerings you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. That sounds different to me. Does it sound different to anybody else? Well, that's good, because it is different. It's quite different. That is, that is significantly different. What's going on? Why does he substitute body for ears here? And how do we make sense of this? And what warrant does he have to do this? See, I don't believe that the New Testament authors are just playing willy-nilly with the text because they're under the influence of the Holy Spirit. Say, I can do this because I'm inspired, okay? So that's not what they're doing. I believe they're treating the text with care in its original context and showing us how to rightly understand it in light of Christ's coming. And so I see, think the same thing is happening here. We need to observe first that in Psalm 40, verse 6, you can translate the phrase, you can translate the phrase, um, you have given me an open ear this way. Ears you have dug for me. That's kind of the literal way you could say it. You have dug for me ears, which is just another way of saying that God has opened David's ears to hear him and to do his will. So in that sense, you can say that David's body was prepared to do God's will. God had given him an open ear and a heart to follow him and understand. That's why he says there, I delight to do your will, O God, your laws within my heart. In the book of Hebrews, the author is now focusing on the sacrificial death of Jesus. So Christ's physical body is the focal point of the entire book. We're very concerned about Jesus' physical body in the book of Hebrews. Why? Because it's what he gave as a sacrifice. So what the author of Hebrews seems to be doing then is combining these two ideas, the sacrifice of Christ and Christ's ears being open or dug open, his whole body, you could say, being prepared to do God's will. And that's why he doesn't follow either the Septuagint or the original Hebrew in his use of the word body here. And I think it's entirely legitimate for him to do this as he, was, as he is building this argument and focusing on Christ's physical body who will be, that will be the sacrifice for sins. David, speaking as the Messiah, recognizes that God does not ultimately do not delight in or require animal sacrifices. He wants a person who will do his will. And now this will, as we'll see, is to give himself up for, the Messiah to give himself up now up for God's people. Let's look at what he says now in the latter part of verses 8 through 10. What's this will that, that he is delighting to do in verse 7? Behold, I've come to do your will. What will is this? Verse 10. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. What, is it, what does it mean to be sanctified? I, I, I'm sure some of us have different ideas as to what this word sanctified means. It has a very intentional meaning here in the book of Hebrews. Sanctified simply means to be set apart, to be set apart specifically for God, to be holy. That's another word you could use. The priests were set apart for God. They were sanctified. They were, they were holy in that sense. The elements of the tabernacle, they were all set apart for God's use. They were holy. In, when Jesus offers his body once for all in that act of sacrifice, we are set apart for God. By the nature of Christ's sacrifice, that one-time, decisive, unrepeatable, unchangeable, permanent death on the cross, we now have made a permanent breach with sin 
uh, completely. And all of God's people have experienced this because of Christ's once for all death on the cross. We have experienced a permanent breach with sin. This is called definitive sanctification. That once for all, unchanging, permanent break with sin. That's what he is referring to here. Christ has done that through his offering. He is now sanctified, sanctified, definitively God's people. And you might be thinking, Derek, when I hear the word sanctified, I think of progressive sanctification. What's progressive sanctification? That is a growing more and more set apart for God, more and more holy. By growing in spiritual maturity, putting sin to death, growing in grace and knowledge. That is progressive sanctification. You could just say it like this. Progressive sanctification is just becoming more and more like Jesus in our thoughts, feelings, words, and actions. That's all it is. And it's something that God is doing to us over time as we are Christians. It's something that the Spirit is doing. We're growing more and more like Christ. It's one of God's promises in the New Testament. But that's not what he's talking about here. That's actually encouraging news. The sanctification that occurred at Christ's death and at our conversion is a once-for-all breach with sin. You have been set apart for God. And that's unchangeable. It can't be reversed. It can't be taken away. In a real sense, if you've come to Christ with saving faith, you have made a break with sin that cannot be redone. You will not be attached to sin ever again in the way that you were prior to your conversion. You have been sanctified definitively sanctified. Unlike the priest who stood daily doing his duty of repeatedly offering sacrifices, can't even take away sins, Jesus here in verses 11 and 12, we'll see he did his duty by offering his own body as a sacrifice and then sat down at the right hand of God because he completed the duty that was given to him. It was a once-for-all sacrifice that now sanctifies definitively God's people. And that's powerful. Christ's work is different than the old covenant priest's work. They could never sit down. Sitting down was something they could never do. Right? And I just have this picture of an assembly line. I know assembly lines for vehicles are now all automated, and it's all robots, and that's amazing. I mean, it truly is amazing. But there was a day, believe it or not, and maybe there still is. Maybe in some factories they're still using people to install certain parts. But nevertheless, there was a day when it was only people installing parts on vehicles along a long conveyor belt. And it would be like you being told by your manager, okay, you can sit down when the conveyor belt stops. And you're putting in the parts, and you're putting in the parts, and here comes the next car, and you put in your parts, and you put on your parts, and you look down the, the, uh, all the way down to the end of the factory, and there's no end in sight. And the conveyor belt does not seem to be stopping. And you've learned that you are now in a nightmare job because the conveyor belt actually never does stop. And so you never get to sit down because your job is never over. That's the case with the priests in the Old Covenant, they could never sit down and take a rest and take a break. They always had to be working and working and working and sacrificing animals because there was no definitive once-for-all sacrifice for sin because it was impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. So their job was never over. That's not Jesus. Look what he says in verse 12. But when Christ had offered for all times a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. The job is done. The duty is over. He has completed it. The conveyor belt of sacrifices has stopped. You can sit down. He sat down, so now his people can also rest 
in a good conscience that has been cleansed from sin. But he has sat down at the right hand of God. In verse 13, it says that he's waiting for that time when his enemies shall be made a footstool for his feet. See, the author of Hebrews here and all the Old Testament is is tying together all of Israel's hope in one person. He is the final high priest. He is the final sacrifice. He is the king who will have victory over his enemies. He will someday be the one who reigns perfectly over death, Satan, demons, and all the people who have rejected him. That's our Savior. That's Jesus Christ. And it's possible for him to do this because he has, this is now verse 14, he has by a single offering perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Let's look at this last section here. This is our last section. Christ's once for all sacrifice perfects God's people forever. This is such a wonderful verse. And this is such a wonderful verse for those of us today who do have a profound wrestling with sin and a sense of of guilt that often just creeps in and derails us. This is such a sweet word. One thing I want to point out, though, is the ESV and the New American Standard and the NIV translate verse 14, the latter part of it, as being sanctified. Okay? And that makes sense because it is in the present tense. But I think here we're not intended to take impress that tense too sharply or too hard. I believe the word sanctified here is being used the same way it's being used throughout the book of Hebrews, referring to a definitive sanctification. So what the author is saying here is that Jesus, those who he has sanctified with his once-for-all death, not only did he, by his once-for-all death, set you apart from sin definitively and forever, but he has also purchased for you utter perfection that will be someday yours when you're in God's presence. There is coming a day when you will not only not sin, but not be able to sin. Is that not sweet or what? That is the hope of the believer. Not, not, not a day when you, you don't sin anymore, but a day when you're not even able to sin. That's what Christ has purchased for his people, he, to make them perfect. If you've been set apart for God definitively, there's coming a day when you will be utterly perfected. That's what Christ has purchased for you. Eternal perfection. This is a sweet verse, isn't it? Christ's death has not only definitively sanctified you, but he's purchased for you eternal perfection. There's coming a day when you will no longer be able to sin. You'll no longer be burdened by your sinful flesh. You will be truly and finally free. And that is a beautiful and wonderful expectation for the believer. And it is as sure as Christ has died on the cross and risen again, you will be made perfect. And it it really does reveal our hearts by how thrilled we are about that reality. If we enjoy our sin and we have no relish for the day when we will not be able to sin, that may reveal that you haven't actually been definitively set apart. It may reveal that you're not truly in Christ because a person who is in Christ, as we'll see here in a moment, has had their heart changed Yes, I do still sin, but do I delight in it? No. Do I want to be ultimately delivered from it? Yes. That's the heart cry of the believer. Another reason I believe that this is 
being sanctified is referring to definitive sanctification and not ongoing progressive sanctification is because what he says in verse 16. This is now referring to the, back to the passage that Peter read in Jeremiah. This is the promise of the new covenant. This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. That's a definitive change that happens at salvation. I believe what Jeremiah is referring to here is what you would call in the New Testament regeneration. The heart is changed by God. He writes the law on your heart. He writes his word on your heart. He changes the desires. That's what conversion is. That's what salvation is. At the very least, it's a change in desire. The heart has been changed. We live out of our hearts, don't we? We do and we think and we act out of our hearts. How do you get real obedience? You change the heart. And God did that definitively in salvation, in that new covenant. And that's why I believe he's referring to here a definitive sanctification. It's what he promised. That definitive change that happens. Well, this is all tied to verse 17 that promised in the new covenant, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. That's where this begins. That's where it must begin. You might be thinking, Derek, you know, you've talked a lot about definitive sanctification and kind of set aside progressive sanctification. Do you not believe in progressive sanctification? Do you not believe that we should pursue holiness? And I'd say, absolutely, that's replete throughout the New Testament. We must pursue holiness. We must pursue a greater growth in Christ-likeness. But it starts with being definitively sanctified through the complete forgiveness of your sins. If we get the order wrong, we enter into a whole other religion. Some people may think, yeah, holiness pleases the Lord, obedience pleases the Lord, I'll be holy and I'll obey and God will forgive me. It's not how Christianity works. That's how every other religion in the world works. Every other religion in the world says, we're good deep down on the inside, so keep getting better and you'll get forgiven. In some iteration, that's the message of man-made religion. Christianity says you are evil, first get forgiven of your sin by faith in Christ alone, and then become more and more like your Savior. And that's why he ends with this, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. That is the entrance into the blessings of the new covenant. You must have your sins forgiven. It's been secured by the once for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So here's the application for us as we close. And I hope that it's evident. Christ's once for all sacrifice frees us from the guilt of unforgiven sin. I've told you guys this before, but I looked a Stanford student in the face years ago after we had debated for three hours about whether or not God exists and the truth of Christianity, and I was trying every other possible argument I could give him until I looked him in the eye and I said, Jesus will forgive you of all of your sins. That basically stopped the conversation. Because he realized at that moment was that was the deepest thing his soul needed. He had sophisticated arguments for why he didn't believe, and that hit him square. And the conversation was very different for the next few minutes, and then we, we ended shortly thereafter. Why? Because it broke through all the mirage of all of his reasons for why he doesn't believe in God. 
His soul needed complete forgiveness, and that is what the gospel offers it. It offers that to you today, right now, definitively, so that you don't have to keep sacrificing. Whatever that sacrifice, whatever that ritual is, whether it's going down and feeding the homeless, whether it's trying to be a good person at work, whether it's trying to be a good whatever it is, you come to Christ, you have your sins forgiven, and then you begin the process of becoming more and more like your Savior. There's no more daily or yearly reminder that we have unforgiven sin that needs to be dealt with. No, all of our sin was forgiven at the cross of Christ. So that conviction that we feel when we sin, and there should be conviction for the believer, but that conviction we feel when we sin should not be the fear that an employee feels when they've messed up at work and they've got an angry, emotionally volatile employer and they're they fear that their employer is going to ream them out, dock their pay, and fire them, or all of the above. That's not the kind of conviction that believers should have over their sin. That's not the new covenant way of handling our sin. When we, see, when we sin, we should see the fullness of Christ's atonement. We should see that our, the guilt of our sin is forgiven. And the reality that though our sin is evil, God counts us as holy because we've been forgiven and cleansed once for all by the one-time sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ. And it's only when we handle sin in this new covenant way that we will be able to appropriately grieve over our sin and call it evil while finding joy in Christ's forgiveness. This is the way of true holiness. This is new covenant holiness. This is a holiness that not only pleases God, but it's a holiness that changes us from the inside out. And this is all the fruit of Christ's once-for-all sacrifice. So let us pray now and thank God for this sacrifice. Heavenly Father, we are overwhelmed at the gift of Christ's sacrifice, the sufficiency of it. It's, it overwhelms our sin. It overcomes our sin. It protects us in a state of no condemnation. So then we can begin to look sin square in the face and to deal with it because we have our Heavenly Father who's on our side, who loves us, who's for us. God, I do pray that you give everyone here today spiritual understanding of these truths that go deep into their hearts, not merely remain on their minds, that we all would rest in the Glorious assurance that Christ has purchased for us a once-for-all forgiveness of sins because of his one-time sacrifice on the cross. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening. For more information about Creekside Bible Church, please visit our website at creeksidebiblechurch.com.